is in Jonah chapter, or chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and, and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh is a large, was a very large city, and it took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, Forty more days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God. The fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on a sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, and covered himself with sackcloth and sat down in the dust. This is a proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people eat or do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink. But let the people and the animals be covered with sackcloth. Everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relenish with compassion and turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When the God saw what they had did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. This is the word of God for the people of God. Would you pray with me? Gracious God, give us humble and teachable and obedient hearts that we might receive what you have revealed and do what you have commanded. Amen. So during the month of August, we've been exploring God's story through Jonah's story. The book of Jonah is in miniature what the story of the Bible is as a whole. A story whose main message, as we keep seeing in this background, is salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation comes from the Lord. The Lord is the God of rescue, of new beginnings. And although the story is barely in your Bible, a front and back of one page, we've already seen two very different kinds of people experience this rescue. We've seen a whole shipload of sailors who didn't even know God, actually prayed to different gods, a whole variety of gods. They experienced an amazing rescue from the sea. And we saw this man who was supposed to be God's servant who had run off and done his own thing and come face to face with death. He also was rescued, transformed. The Lord took him from that place and gave him a new beginning. So Jonah has been a uh, run from God and do what I want fellow, but now he's had a face-to-face -face personal experience with God's rescue, with God's grace. So the question is, mm, what's that going to do in Jonah? How is Jonah going to be any different because of that? The question is, um, for you and for me, if we have had a similar experience with God, how does that impact us? How will that affect us? What kind of person will we be because of it? So here we are in chapter three. It's the second half of the story. 
And the second half of the story begins almost identically to the first half, the same phrase. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time saying, get up, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out to it the message I tell you. So God's call comes again. And you remember the last time this happened, Jonah ran away. Jonah did the opposite. So the question is, what's he going to do now? Now that he's been to the pit, down in the deep. Well, this time Jonah gets up. And he goes to Nineveh and he does what the word of the Lord tells him to do. Ah, great. Now the story can move forward. Now the plan God had at the beginning, we'll actually see it unfold. It feels like it's been a whole long detour until now. Now we're back where it started. Jonah's following God's voice instead of turning the other way. Of course, we won't know till next week all the ins and outs of what this experience for Jonah did inside his heart. That will be uncovered in a week. But at least now we can know what's up with these Ninevites. So verse 3, now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three days journey in breadth. We're told two things about about Nineveh. The, The literal Hebrew phrase of this first part is that Nineveh was a great city to God. Now, what does that mean? Does that just mean it was important in the day? Maybe. That it was really big? Maybe that this is how God viewed Nineveh, that there's something in God's perspective that saw Nineveh as great, maybe. And then we see the size thing, three days journey. It was so wide that it took multiple days to get into and across and experience it. We find out later in the story that Nineveh had about 150,000 people in it. Now, in that era, that was a huge, that was a metropolitan city. That was New York City. That was uh, Mexico City. That was Moscow. I mean, that was huge for an ancient city, 150,000 people. Nineveh was not only big, it was significant. It affected culture around it. I mentioned uh, two weeks ago, well, week one, that Nineveh was about 500 miles north and east of Israel, and it probably would have taken Jonah about a month to get there, even though MapQuest says I can walk it in a week. But when he arrives, we don't see the time frame. That's not really important to the storyteller. But when he gets there, he wastes no time in carrying out the message that he's been given. We're told even within the first day's walk, first day's entering the city, he starts saying what he's supposed to say. 40 days, and Nineveh will be overturned. This is a sermon that wastes no words. Probably more like what you would wish I would do. But it feels like some details are missing. Like, like overturned why? Overturned how? I mean, is God going to do this? Is, are there going to be some other invading army going to come in and destroy it? Can anything be done about this? 40 days, and Nineveh will be overturned. Give me some details, Joe. Or maybe he did, and maybe the writer's just condensing this, so uh, we don't have to hear 45 minutes worth of what actually sums up to be one sentence, and you could just say it and go home. Actually, it's a pretty clear message, except for the last word. 
40 days, and Nineveh will be overturned. So in Hebrew, this word can kind of have two different understandings. Overturned can mean overthrown or destroyed. It is used often for uh, people coming in with their armies and destroying a city, laying waste, gone, destroyed. It can also mean an overturning of the heart, a changing of the heart, a changing of the mind. So you've heard phrases in the Bible like, he turned my mourning into joy, or my joy into mourning. So this flip of attitude, experience, heart, direction. Either one of these can be taken out of this word, and we have to figure out what it means from the context or how, it, how it's used. So the question is, is Jonah's message, 40 days and Nineveh will be overturned, is God intending them to hear that as destroyed, heart changed? Is it intentionally vague so that we really don't know? It may depend on what the response to the message is. Maybe we need to be reminded who the people are that are hearing this. Nineveh, again, is the capital of Assyria, which was the most powerful, militarized, violent empire the world had ever known to that point in history. There was no other empire that did the kind of violent things that the Assyrians did up until that point in the world. They pursued their nation's wealth and security and conquering by going out and destroying people all over the earth as far as they could reach. Even today in the British History Museum, there are pictures of ancient carvings, um, relief carvings that the Assyrian poets or artists did. And these relief carvings show different acts that their military would do. And so they have pictures of soldiers who are ripping the skin off of their enemy people. They have pictures of soldiers who have hung the heads of their enemies on wooden stakes outside of a city with heads of their enemies piled up in a heap beside them. This is the art that they have done to show their conquest and to intimidate anybody else who would defy their empire building. You can look it up if you want, or you can go visit if you like to look at them personally. So the Assyrian Empire was a culture intent on conquest and violence and torture and destruction. Those were the tools they used to spread their influence. And into the capital city of this empire, Jonah marches, proclaiming 40 days and Nineveh will be overturned. Now, if you have heard this story before, don't let your familiarity with it cloud out the impact of what happens next in the story. The question is, if we're just hearing it, going along, the question is, how are these people going to respond to this message? We know the kind of people they are. We know what the message is. What's the response going to be? Verse 5, the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast. They put on sackcloth, which would probably feel about like wearing this pew seat as a shirt. They put on sackcloth. The king of Nineveh heard the message, and he rose up from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. 
And he issued a proclamation, published it throughout all the city. By the decree of the king and his nobles, don't let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but instead let people and animals be covered in sackcloth. Put, drape this thing on your cows. Keep them away from the grass. Fast and pray. Who knows? Everyone turn from your evil ways and your violent ways. Who knows? God may have mercy and relent so that we might not perish. Wait, what? The Ninevites did this? You got you to feel this. This is shocking. This is unexpected. This is like strolling into Las Vegas and shouting in the streets, 40 days and Las Vegas will be overturned. And the whole city um, rushing out of the all-you-can-eat buffets and fasting, running out of the casinos and giving generously and repenting and praying and asking God for mercy. This is like the mayor of Las Vegas sending out letters to all the households and say, everyone shut down your strip clubs, everyone shut down your casinos, get rid of all your weapons, turn them in at this station. Every form of evil, instead fast and pray to God that, the, that God may have mercy. This is like the drug dealers of Marion County being told that in 40 days they will be overthrown and they come and confess and repent and bring all of their money, all of their gear and use the money to establish a drug rehab center. This is an in the flesh story of the theme that's repeated throughout the Bible over and over again. That when humility is shown, that God responds in mercy. So all these responses and invites are symbols of humility. When a king was conquered, the conquerors took off his robe as a sign that you no longer have authority. You have been defeated. You've been conquered. So the king gets up off his throne, takes off his robe as a sign to say, I am recognizing a higher authority than me. And he goes and sits in the dirt because... Um, dust or ashes, uh, when an invading army would come into a city and overthrow it, they would often burn the city to the ground, and nothing was left but the dust. So it was a sign of destruction, of death. So the king gets up and sits down in the dirt, connecting with his frailty, with his mortality, recognizing that he, in relationship to God, is nothing but dust. Fasting, of course, is a way to keep from you the things that make you comfortable, that make you satisfied, that cover up your hungers, your longings. Many of you know how when you stop eating, whether you've just skipped a meal or you've chosen to, that um, there's somebody that comes out of you that you don't like to see. <laughs> or maybe your family notices that more than you because Often we cover up the things about ourselves that we don't like with, other, with satisfying our appetites, not just food. We cover those things up. And so both putting away from food is, is not taking what I want, what I'm comfortable with, but it's also letting who I really am be revealed before the Lord. 
a humility. This is what the Assyrians do from the king down to the animals. Believing God, humbling themselves, placing themselves at God's feet, at God's mercy. Another important detail, and maybe it's obvious, but everything turns on this. Verse 5. The people of Nineveh believed God. Now, when, uh, when believing God gets talked about in our culture, even in church oftentimes, it often means something like, I believe, I agree in my head that there is a God. I believe that God exists. We even sang this morning this song with these words, I believe in God our Father, I believe in Christ the Son, I believe in the Holy Spirit. And often what we mean by that is, I agree in my head that that is, that they are real, that this is true. It's an in-the-head thing, affirming the truth of something, affirming that it exists. It's pretty common language these days, believing in God or believing in Jesus. It's, it's kind of in the same package as, do you believe that two and two are four? Well, yes, uh, yes, it's true. Of course I do. Yes, I believe that God exists. Yes, I believe Jesus died for my sins. It, in our culture, it tends to be something that goes on up here an agreement. But the Bible describes believing differently. And the Ninevites' response is one expression of this. The, the Ninevites are said to have believed God, but they are described not as anything in their head, but as the actions that come out of this. Uh, they, king removes his robes and sits in ashes. The people put on this sackcloth and they fast. They make their animals fast. But he doesn't even stop there. If he stopped there, we might think, well, believing has to do with uh, incorporating religious activity or spiritual activity like church stuff. That's, I mean, fasting and, and sitting in ashes, that's churchy stuff. But the king of Nineveh calls the people further. He says, let everyone turn from his or her evil ways, turn from the violence that's in her hands. Change your behavior, people, that's what he says. Do things differently. Friends, believing God is always, 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 always tied to specific behavior. It's always tied to our lifestyle, how we live. It's not simply something agreed with in the head. It is something demonstrated in the living. When a person believes God, they trust that God's assessment of a situation, whatever it is, is the accurate one. And they line up their life according to God's assessment of the situation. That's believing. Once it starts in the head, I mean, it's got to start in the head. We've got to agree with it first before we line up our life with it. But if it's only agreeing, it's not believing fully. And actually, lining up your life with it is believing even if we say we don't agree with it in our head. So if Jesus says that forgiving others as Jesus has forgiven us is to be a regular practice for those who live into God's abundant life, but in your life there are a couple of people you refuse to talk to, refuse to make amends with, refuse to have anything to do with because being around them just makes you angry, and you're unwilling to work on that area, you say, God, no, I'm not going to talk to those people, I'm not going to do that work then you aren't believing Jesus, at least not in that particular area of life. 
If you're reading your Bible and you discover, oh my goodness, I never knew, I never realized that God designed uh, seven days in the week to be a rhythm where six days are for working and one day is for um, resting and worshiping and re-strengthening my relationship with God. There's this rhythm and pattern. I just treat every day the same. I work all the time because I feel like that's what I'm supposed to do. I was raised as a worker and then suddenly I come across this part of the scripture where God reveals, no, that's not my way. Then we come to this point where we say, okay, God, I believe your assessment of the situation or I don't. If you say you believe God and God's word says, let no unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what's helpful for building others up according to their needs, and God shines a light on you and you recognize, wow, some of the words that come out of my mouth are consistently criticizing or consistently telling stories about other people that just make them look bad so that I can feel good about the laughter I get or the response I get. And when God shines that light, I can either agree, this is the way that I will talk in your kingdom, in your family, God. Or we say, forget it, that's not going to be part of my life then we're not believing God, at least not in that area. The Ninevites believed God. That is, they trusted God's assessment of their situation as communicated through Jonah. They believed that their current ways of living were not pleasing to God, specifically their violence and whatever other evil they were doing. And they changed how they were thinking and living. That is, they repented. They Repentance, again, isn't, isn't a mind thing. It's a lifestyle turnaround. It's a change of action. Repentance isn't a feeling bad. and doing, It's a doing things different. Amazingly enough, the Ninevites believed God. They humbled themselves. They repented, and they changed how they were living. Now, we know from history this wasn't a permanent change. It was perhaps merely a temporary change. But it was a change nonetheless at that point. And at that point, when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring on them the destruction that he had threatened. In Jonah's story, like the big story, we've already seen God's compassion expressed twice. We've seen God's compassion expressed towards the sailors on the ship when they were in dire straits. We've seen God's compassion expressed towards Jonah, the runaway prophet in the deep. And now we see God's compassion isn't reserved for one group or one race or for people who know more about God or have gone to church longer or who have been good people. God's character doesn't change from one person to the next. God's character of compassion and grace and mercy and justice is consistent to every single person, to every single group of people, every single kind of person. This is who God is. God's character doesn't change. And so, when the most violent, the most sinful person or group of people hear this word from God that 
destruction is coming if I continue on this path. And they hear it and they believe it. And that belief transforms into change of life, change of practice. Then God's compassion pours out. That is to say, it doesn't matter what our history is. What matters is humility and acting on what God's words are, taking them to be true, taking them to be a right assessment of the situation. No matter how many years or how few minutes you have been believing God, God's mercy comes when we believe, when we humble. Maybe you're thinking, oh, this is so old. This is old news. This is the good news. This is also the challenging news. Will we believe God? Will we open ourselves to God's mercy and humble ourselves? And will we pray with expectation that those in our life that we long to see a change in, um, will we trust that God's character is consistent with them and that when they come to a place, will we pray them into a place of humility, of believing, of trusting, of acting? Amen.